Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we are going to answer more of your cycling or triathlon training related questions today. You can submit them to us at trainerroad.com slash podcast, and we will go through them, read through them, uh, all of them, and uh, build up uh, a list for next week to, to answer for y'all. Uh, but first, before we get into things, we have a few house cleaning items. Uh, first of all, we were talking about maple syrup. We actually got called out on, on Twitter for this, but uh, we were actually saying that we didn't know exactly the G or the, the, the glycemic index of maple syrup, and it's actually 54. Uh, so it's pretty low, right, Chad? I mean, comparatively speaking. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised. I thought I didn't know for sure, but I thought it'd be um, on the pretty high end of that index, but it turns out it's right smack dab in the middle. Yeah. I would think it'd be more like glucose, which is 100, mm -hmm. because it's just sugar. Oh. Uh, a russet potato baked is 111. Yeah. And brown rice boiled is 50. So maple syrup is 54. That's yeah. just pretty interesting. Another point of reference that's common on the bike is a banana. That's 55. Um, yeah. So interesting stuff. Uh, that's uh, so checking that one off for y'all. Uh, on the other side of things, Nate, uh, recently you did uh, a hill climb time trial on your mountain bike from about what? I guess 5,000 feet up to uh, 8,000 feet. Something okay. like that. Yeah. That yeah. was the one that you guys weren't, uh, were too scared to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> this guy. No. It's, yeah. We I were had, both traveling the next day. Yeah. We were both traveling the next day. And, and, and as you guys can attest, I had every intention of doing it, but every, I, I just had too many things to do. Uh, just another point of reference. I did Carson City off-road and traveled the next day. <laughs> Look at just so you guys know, just so you know. Anyways, um, <laughs> should we bring I, up I, that, I, that was a 35 mile and not a 50 mile? <laughs> still, this was, well, that, that's a good point because that was a 35, what, four hour race. Yeah. And this race, the hill climb was an hour race. Yeah. A lot shorter. So I did a four hour race. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> just a point of reference. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like doing like race recaps, but yeah. I did learn a few things. Yeah. Um, one, I, uh, it was really hot at the bottom. You know, and, and if I can just jump in really quick, I, I had to be up there to take some pictures and then I, I jetted back home, take care of the rest of the things I needed to do. And when I was up there taking pictures, I was actually thinking it doesn't feel that hot, but everybody that was coming up the trail had their jerseys fully unzipped and they looked like they were cooking. So was it really hot at the base and then it cooled off or well, was I just unaware because I wasn't under duress? Yeah, you weren't under, you were in a air conditioned truck and then you came out and took pictures and then jumped back in. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that wasn't so hot. I mean, I was outside for a while. Yeah. But yeah. A bit, as you got higher up, it got a lot cooler. But, uh, one thing is Jonathan was taking pictures and he actually, I was like, water, I need water. And he gave me some ice cold water and I poured it on my back. And that was right at a point where there was a slight headwind and that evaporative cooling that gave me, I was about halfway through the climb. It gave me all, like my power went up. I felt so much better and I didn't um, like overheat the rest of the way. And I think that's a combination of the evaporative cooling kind of helped me for the rest of the time up. And also the, uh, it got cooler as you got higher. Actually on the way down, it was kind of cold because yeah. we went so high up. Yeah. And where you came and right after you got that water, it wasn't long after that. And then you got exposed to the wind a little more. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm sure where, that was a good time. Just uh, going back to the last episode, if it wasn't windy, it, the coolness would make you feel good. But after a while, if it was really muggy or something in Reno, it, it would, it, I could feel even worse, kind of right. like, almost like it's an insulation of a blanket on me. Totally. But uh, Your, your and, normalized power was at 289? Uh, 289, I think. Yep. What does that work out in power to weight? for you. Oh, I don't know. We're going to do the math. Where's your weight at right now? I think now? that was, uh, that day was like 83 kilos. Okay. So someone yeah. do the math. Not bad. Um, not good though, either, but I basically, <laughs> I, I paced it really, uh, I did a negative split on pacing by a lot. I think by too much, I haven't analyzed the power data, but based on what I saw in the Garmin, I think I was 10 or 15 Watts higher on the second half than the first half, which okay. is too much. Yeah. Um, but anyways, the important part is that I was then going to a, one of those calculators online where you can put in the gradient and, you know, your power and your weight and that kind of thing. And I'm trying to, for single track six, I'm, I'm freaking out. And I'm trying to think of, <laughs> should I, you know, weight loss versus power, right? Which is always a huge yeah. topic. Yeah. And I, I started putting numbers in and I did like a Geiger, which is a, a climb here in, in Reno. It's about 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how fast you are. Yeah. Um, and if I lost like a pound or two, 
I lose or I gain or yeah, I lose like uh, it's like 15, a pound is like 15 or 20 seconds, right? On the climb. If I up my FTP by 15 watts, it's like two minutes, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, man, I am a 6'6", in case anyone didn't know. And <laughs> at that time of the race, I was like 183, I think. I think that's like 83 kilos or 182, somewhere in there. Yeah. I can't lose more weight. Uh, right. Longtime podcast listeners know that taking some time off, I think I got up to like 205. Yeah. It wasn't all muscle. But <laughs> <laughs> but it, anyways, 205 at a guy who's, who's tall doesn't look that big. I, I did a very uh, concerted effort to lose a lot of weight, and yeah. I did it pretty quickly. And now that I'm kind of at like the the lower end of a like a healthy weight for my height, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking, and I want your guys' opinion on this, I should be not at all worried about mm -hmm. a pound here or there or going lower, and I should just yeah. be focused on power, 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 power. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, and... Uh, uh, Key and Swenson, uh, friend of the podcast, he's one of the best cross country mountain bike racers in the nation, and he's having a fantastic year. And this year, he said that he has cared less about weight. Now, granted, he weighs like a you know he could blow away in the wind. He weighs like 135 pounds when he's like when he's heavy, probably. But he he this year has not been as concerned with keeping his weight low. That doesn't mean that he's gained a lot of weight, but that means that he's focused more on raising power mm -hmm. in, in terms of shifting that focus and. He's having a really good year. So, and that's something that he always hits home. In fact, he listens to the podcast and he was, he's always like, oh, so many people worry too much about their weight. Yep. They just need to worry about getting faster. Yeah, and you get down to that fine line. I mean, I, I I can get down as low as like 168, but I don't race my best there. I race my best at 175. That's, that's been the moral of every every story, every year that I have a good year, good results. So I, I always level out right about 175. There we are. Yeah, there's a sweet spot for everybody. I want to focus too on eating enough food that I can raise my FTP and actually train more. Um, I think I've only been doing it for a little while, but I, you know, I talked about eating a little bit under my caloric deficit leading up to single track six. Mm -hmm. I've now erased that. I've upped my carb percent actually to 60 to 70%, which is, I know a lot people are probably gasping mm -hmm. and falling over, but my idea is I can do, I, I want to, uh, have more intensity and have more actually time on the bike. And then that hopefully then would raise my power to weight ratio and then I would race better. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, and my wife's like, please do this. But I, I look at other tall racers yeah. and say I'm 183, 184. This morning I was actually 185. Um, but I mean, it just changes it day to day, right? Right. I think for a guy my height, 190 to 195, but get my FTP up oh, yeah. real mm -hmm. high, like 370, 380 yeah. would be a comfortable and I would it's Chad, actually, this is all just a strategy for our, for our TT, right? Cause that's power to aerodynamics with our flat TT in one year against Jonathan, where yeah. we're both going to just destroy I feel like, him. I feel, like, FTP, that's all I I feel like all three of us are racing each other, but that's actually kind of not the case. I feel like you two are racing me. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I'm going for a sub 50. I'm not racing anybody. Nice. Nice. But anyway, so you guys, that, that would be yeah. more, I, I think, think that'd so. be better for me. So, yeah, I think, I don't know the correct, the way to get there. I think I'm just going to eat more and train more. And I think it will naturally come up. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, yeah. it's like the, the the dumb way to go about it. But anyways, I thought it was a, a good takeaway of some people as I'm kind of on that edge. And I'm probably actually too light for my height and just focus yeah. on power. And that's really what's going to save me on single track six and on every other hill climb and on all flat races. Mm -hmm. To give right. you a point too, eating a little bit more, I did 289 for an hour. Yeah. I did Monday, I did 290 normalized for 97 minutes. Yeah. There right. you go. Yeah. And I was like, that's way better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Granted, yeah. And we're talking about different circumstances. With heat exactly. Hill climb and the heat and this yep. was uh, on the road. But yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Definitely different. Yeah. Within reason, I think the priority should always be placed on elevating FTP. I mean, and, you can worry about body weight if you've got an obvious weight problem and you can tell that that weight's slowing you down. But if you're, if you're even reasonably lean, it can't be the priority. Mm -hmm. And I think you will lean out too. If you're like, if you're reasonably lean and you're training a lot mm -hmm. i think you're, you're just naturally in most not all cases most cases it'll, you just naturally lean take out. care of itself yeah. exactly yeah. but i think if you're um on that borderline of obesity or not a borderline obesity if you're if you know you're overweight yeah if you've got 10 15 pounds a ditch it can just, be a, a greater priority just ditch them and then train a bunch 
or, or do it both at the same time. Do the same time. Yeah. yeah, and we've we've noted, uh, and I just want to confirm this within reason. Chad said, and we've talked about in most cases, they, oh, yeah. these aren't like golden rules that everybody mm-hmm. needs to go out and apply right now. We're just talking. People will hate and be like, <sighs> "You told everyone." Oh, well, I'll get two emails. You told everyone to gain weight. You told everyone to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll get them both. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. So, um, but yeah, good job on that hill climb, by the way, Nate. Thank you. I uh, yeah. I almost won the division. I lost it by like. 14 seconds. And I think it's because I didn't pace. Did you lose to one of our juniors? No, I beat some juniors. Good job. Yeah. Tiny little guys fly uphill. They went up C2. This is another takeaway. Uh, I passed so many people the second half. Yeah. Everyone went out so hard at the beginning. Uh, One of my buddies who we usually go back and forth in races, I was doing like 320. Yeah. And he he must have been doing like 420 to start, right? Why? For an hour? There's no point. And it was- That's a dangerous approach in general, but especially on a hot day. On a hill climb TT too. Yeah. And this hill climb too is a huge fire road. There's no single track. Yeah. You can pass anyone at any time. And I passed more juniors at the top. Oh yeah. Because those guys, they, they start out so hard, <laughs> right. right? I think I passed like six or seven juniors. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. And kudos to all those kids for getting to the top. So <laughs> um, I just got back from a week in Canada and I wanted to share just a few um, insights that I had from that. I, I was with a group of people that weren't necessarily, they weren't training for anything. And I, on the other hand, am training for something. So I was a little, um, I was curious as to how I was going to be able to still get in some training and uh, fit in all the fun riding we did. Cause Whistler is like, if anybody doesn't know, that's Whistler, British Columbia and Canada. And it's Mecca for mountain biking. It's like, it's the place to go, has the biggest bike park in the world. It's, and if anybody's listening to this and thinking I have money to burn on a bike vacation, go there. It is so good. So what's it like? I've, I've seen pictures, but is it like, do you take up chairlifts and go yeah. down or? Yeah, it- there's at the resort, there are hardly, I don't know. I think that maybe there were a couple trails. So Whistler is, it's two ski resorts put together, Whistler and Blackcomb. Blackcomb has some climbing trails that you can do. But other than that on Whistler, there's really no climbing you can do. It's all you ride the lift and you go down and this is you know some of the gnarliest trail in the world but something i learned about that bike park specifically if you are a beginner rider don't worry you can still go there ride the lifts up and they have a bunch of trails for absolute beginners all the way up which is pretty cool i would guess too being that big you could probably hire a coach or there'd be like coaching services there they're everywhere yeah and then you have a dedicated lift line actually for for you if you're taking a school so yeah oh cool so and they have a bunch of people that are that are coaches and you can rent downhill bikes i brought a cross-country bike everyone thought i was insane and the fact is there's so many trails to choose from that you can find you won't you aren't going to be, if you bring whatever bike you have, you won't find yourself in a situation where you're completely outgunned. So that was pretty cool. Uh, but one thing really quick on the bike park before I get into the training, uh, I just, you know, doing laps after laps after laps, it reinforced the importance of mountain bikers. Even if you're a cross country guy, even if you're a roadie that just occasionally rides or races on the dirt, you should go to a bike park because being able to go lap after lap after lap on something is really helpful. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and one thing that I would recommend is that after you do uh, enough to get comfortable, that you look far to the left, far to the right, and experiment with as many different lines as you can to really mm. throw yourself uh, into situations where you might otherwise not be. And it's, it was really fun to do that, especially because we were carrying a pace that was was uh, comfortable for me. It wasn't wasn't fast or anything else like that, and we were taking breaks. So I was, I mean, I was looking off into the woods and like just you know really messing around with my lines. It was helpful. Did you learn by doing that? Did you find some even better lines that you wouldn't normally consider? Absolutely. Uh, And it reinforced something that even though I tell myself and I feel like I'm uh, particularly good at, I still can always improve, which was entering wide into turns, especially on, on mountain biking. So like looking at the fringe of the trail coming in, and I mean like you know, if you're coming in and it's a single track riding off in the bushes a bit, mm-hmm. sometimes is going to help you carry so much more momentum through that turn than if you just followed directly in the center. Just so the very edge of the trail. Yep. Yeah. So I'm talking riding the fringe coming in on the outside. It really just allows you to carry more speed or react to whatever's coming up easier. So uh, I know we've been really cool. mountain bike centric or focused recently. So I'm sorry for those who aren't, but <laughs> I've been, I've got my road bike now yeah. and I just was doing some road bike rides and I have found with all the mountain bike and all the cross, I, I mentioned this before, but even more now, even with my crash, I am so much more confident with speed on the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, handling before 40 used to freak me out. I just went 40 and I didn't even notice, like yeah. it was just fine. And I was doing, um, 
breakaways with other guys at like 30 miles per hour. And it was, it felt, uh, Comfortable. F- comfortable, right? Yeah, when you when you think about the best bike handlers in the world at the professional level, I'm hard-pressed to think of one of them that didn't come from a mountain bike background. Yeah, they have so you know, Cadell Evans is a Cadell great Evans, Ryder Hedgedall, Peter Sagan. I mean, yeah. all the guys who go downhill really well. John Tomac. Philippe, I believe. I mean, all those guys. has done some. Yeah, all of them. So, yeah, it was just really helpful. And also bike parks specifically really help with speed because in most cases you'll have trails that are really well-groomed. And so you'll ride a trail, you might be on something really tight and loose at home, and you'll be on something that almost feels like concrete because it's such hard packed dirt. And uh, you're able to carry more speed and get more comfortable with that. So, so we're doing that this week. Yeah, we are. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be heading up to uh, North Star with uh, Lee McCormick. If you don't know who he is, you can look him up. You know, Lee Likes Bikes is what he's known as. And he has a really good clinics. He's a legend in the in the mountain bike teaching world. I believe he was even on a world champs team uh, for the U.S., which is pretty sweet. He co-authored a book with Brian Lopes, right? He yep. did. Mountain bike skills book. Yep, absolutely. Mastering mountain bike skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's coming out on Thursday and Friday of this week, and we are going to, and he's he's all ours. Uh, we've reserved him uh, yeah. for just us three, and he's going to work with all three of us. That's and how I, fancy we are. Yeah, yeah. That's how much help we need. <laughs> yeah. And I assume that a lot of you are probably thinking like, oh, well, you know, uh, this one's really for Nate, but... All of us are looking oh, no. forward to the improvement we're going to make. Every every ride, every ride so far, and I've only done a handful of them. I and mean, Jonathan will show me like one little thing and it makes a world of difference. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to having someone who's focused solely on helping us improve our skills for a couple of days. Yeah. And it's going to be huge for me too. I, I think that not only the opportunity to repeat and session things, just redo the same thing, but also having us uh, another person that knows so much, not only about riding, but how to teach riding, having that person analyze your performance for you is is so helpful so i want to see what the takeaways are between me and you jonathan because Mm -hmm. you're obviously much much better at it but is it still going to be the same core right same principles just right yeah it'll be interesting you just apply them 90 percent of the way and i apply them three percent of the way you know what i mean we're going to have a podcast uh, that we'll record with uh, lee on a lot of this stuff here and then we'll also um we we should have some some photo content and some other stuff potentially too from this so should be really cool we're all looking forward to it one last thing on whistler really quick uh most of our riding took place at around, we would leave at like eight in the morning and then we'd head off or eight 30 in the morning. Then we'd, and we'd head off for the whole day and we'd get back at like 6 PM and or 7 PM long days. Most of it was descending, but I was able to squeeze in my training in a few ways. Number one was getting up early and then doing my training. I also did it fasted that way because we usually started off the day with a big breakfast that we cooked. So that was a good opportunity for me to go out and to work on some stuff fasted in the morning. And then I would eat breakfast. Then we'd go out for six hours, seven hours of descending afterward. So that was one way to do it. And I found it really helpful. I also loved working out at sea level, by the way, or close to it. Mm. It always feels so good when you're trying to hit your marks and you're doing great. So uh, the other way that I did it was we were shuttling. And if you go to a place like BC, most of the trails are shuttling trails or they're designed to be shuttled. And what I mean by that is they don't have like a loop or they don't have a single track climb in most cases. So you'll get into situations where you drive a car up to the top and leave a car at the bottom and you shuttle uh, people back up that way. But in this case, I was able to actually, um, I was able to ride up one of the really long climbs that we had just because of the time that it was going to take to shuttle everybody. I looked at it and I thought, Hey, I could climb my way up and, and also be less of a burden on the rest of the group. So I looked for different opportunities to do that. And I also looked at the training that I was doing and I did a lot of it actually, uh, faster or I didn't take in any fuel because a lot of it was descending and it wasn't anything that was going to be too calorically demanding. So I just looked for those little marginal gains that I could do. And I feel like it was really productive for single track six to get in focused training like that. How many days were there? We were there for six days. So six days of every day descending it was all day long. And single track six does have some technical descending. It does. So. Yeah. And I hope it has jumps because I got so much more comfortable with jumping when I was there. It was a lot of fun. So I, I don't think they will though. I don't, <laughs> there are jumps because I've been looking at some of the trails, Oh, nice. but they're like, I feel like you should look at the jump before you ride it once. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? Is, that's mm. my rule on every jump. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're not gonna be able to have that. No. Yeah. Cause some won't. of those ones I was like, Oh, like how do you, you know what I mean? You fly through the air and you just, you trust how it's going to come out. Right. 
Yeah. So it was a, it was a great time. Uh, Not, if you just if, to be clear, I've never done a jump. So yeah. I just look at videos. <laughs> if you go to if but if you end up in a spot like Whistler or anything else like that, bring your XC bike. If you're a roadie, you can bring that bike and you'll still be fine. And hopefully, and you'll get a lot of benefit from it. So um, a couple other house clean, a lot of house cleaning items to take care of. But, uh, first of all, Nate, uh, you and I, uh, after the podcast that we've recorded the previous one on heat adaptation or adaption or acclimatization or acclimation, all the different words that you can use, all that. And, uh, we, we've been doing some, some heat rides and actually I was thinking about, it was 90, it was over 90 degrees one day in Squamish. And, uh, which is just South of British Columbia and we are in the rainforest. So it was a little humid. We've talked about how dry heat is generally, it seems to be better than, than humid heat for this type of a thing. But, um, I wonder if I got any benefit there, but you've been doing some heat adaptation rides, right? Nate? Yeah. I, I was doing them in our shower here, but it was just using Baxter, which is like a endurance ride. That was too intense. And I've not had the willpower to do that again. <laughs> it's pretty rough. So I've been doing instead, instead of my rest day, I've been doing, um, hour long rides at 45% FTP. Mm-hmm. So that would be straight up recovery, right? Chad, 45%. And actually I, I do like that. I feel good after it. And I turn off the fans and I, uh, have the sun from a window on me. And on the weekends, I even turned off the, uh, the AC, AC. Yeah. in trainer road and my office got up to like, what did I say? 92, 93. Yeah. But basically it, it was enough where, um, I was, sweating just a ton, like dripping profusely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and we mentioned that a lot of the studies were saying that they were around 102 degrees Fahrenheit, but really the goal with this, right, Chad, isn't necessarily the ambient temperature. No, the short of it is trying to elevate core temperature and make your body, you know, still be able to produce work while dealing with a high amount of internal heat. Yeah. So I don't know if I, (laughs) we, we joked about this, but (laughs) I don't know what my core temperature is. And Chad, what's the way to get your core temperature? <laughs> it's very unfleasant. Yeah, it'd be it's very uncomfortable. Basically rectal thermometers. I yeah. mean, that's, it'd be it's, very uncomfortable while riding a bicycle. Pretty much that, impossible. Yeah. But yeah. the, uh, no, they, well, they, I guess you they're remote. <laughs> nope, let's just say it's impossible. Yeah, say, I, I saw a little story here. I, I saw a Matt Lieto, Matt, Chris, I was going to- I think it was Chris. It was, Chris. Liados, it was Chris yeah. Lieto. Yeah, it was, you're right, it was Chris. In Kona, he actually swallowed a thermometer, like a pill, mm-hmm. and then it, it, it kept track of it, and then they got it later. Like real-time internal yeah. temperature feedback. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly. In Kona to see, like, how hot his body got. Yeah. So swallowing one, and maybe it was, maybe they didn't get it back. Maybe it was just uh, in him, and I don't remember. This was like- It had an expiration, let's hope. This was almost like 10 years ago. I wonder if we could get our hands on one of those. I don't know. It sounds expensive, right? Probably. Single use. Yeah, yeah single use. Swallow swallowable. Yeah, that seems Transmits. expensive. But, um, and the, so the one thing that we want to cover with this is just the fact that, you know, if you do find yourself with hot weather at your disposal uh, or in your immediate area, um, we don't know exactly what benefit and if it decreases at a certain core temperature and what it is, but at the same time, um, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are some benefits there. Basically, so. if you can gradually adapt your system to further and further heat stress, it's going to be beneficial. If you plan to race hard or even just spend some time riding in the heat, you're going to have to take some time to adjust to that heat. And when we go race a single track six in like two weeks, right now it's, there's days 92, 92. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's it maybe a, a real factor there. Yeah. yeah. We've got hundred degree weather coming up next week. So the other, the other thing too, with this, so we talked about a lot, but so I've gained two, two and a half pounds recently. I'm all the heat adaption. So I could have higher like uh, body water. Yep. And then more glycogen by eating more carbs too. Yeah. But I've been pinching my belly fat. I do it every day. And that's been going down. So there my weight's are. been going up, but my body fat's been going down. We have a DEXA next Monday. Yeah, we do. So yeah. we'll see what that says. But yeah. Um, another house cleaning item really quick, cyclocross tire rules, because it already is hashtag cross is coming. It's almost already that time. Uh, I think the uh-huh. first race is coming around, I think at the end of the month, uh, they're, they're have, they're already starting cross racing now, which is crazy. So, yeah. um, but, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of cross racing because this year we have cross nationals uh, and that is a UCI sanctioned event or governed event, I should say. And as a UCI governed event, we need to adhere to the rules with tires. Uh, we mentioned this loosely last time, but it is indeed 33 millimeters and that's not what the tire says. So if it says it's a 33 C, you can't trust that. Uh, that tire will measure at a different width depending on the internal width of your rim, for example. So what this is, is measured 33 millimeters. The way that they do it is they usually have like a block that you fit your tire into to make sure that it's that width. Uh, but you can also get a pair of calipers and you can figure it out that way. 
one more thing about single track six is uh, I talked about getting a new mountain bike. I, there's no way I can get the, either the uh, Cannondale scalpel or the new specialized Epic to demo before the race. Yep. So uh, I'm just, it's 4.5C. Sticking yep. to it. Chad and I, same setup. Yeah. Mono and mono. I, <laughs> I've seen your recent workouts, Chad, and my, my heart has just sunk because... Uh, oh, I haven't been doing that much, though. But I know you did a 320 FTP workout, and he turned it up like 10%. Yeah, and that, I, was a, that was one of the most friendly forms of VO2 max intervals you can imagine. Still. Chad's a beast. Three, I'm at 305, and you're at 320. Don't downplay this, Chad. This is yeah. your time to psych <laughs> him out. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> you should have been like, yeah, that was after a couple of... 12 hour ride the day before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I will say, I mean, we've talked about, not to beat this to death, but we've talked about that Lasco fan. I had that thing trained on me for the first time. My basement has been like warm. Walked downstairs and was like, oh, this is going to be a tough workout. But I used that bad boy and I got to say, it made all the difference. Yeah. So, so maybe it was just the cooling. Yeah, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> You've always been naturally we'll strong. Stick to that. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. Um, Chad, something that we discovered or we, we talked about a number of episodes back was light and how it could affect sleeping. Yeah. So the detrimental effects of light exposure on the quality of your sleep. Okay. Let's, yeah. uh, I, I think you've, you've assembled yeah, I, some info. Yeah, I put some stuff it. together. It's a bit of a deep dive, but it'll go pretty quickly. Cool. Um, so, so in terms of circadian rhythm, and I'm sure just about everyone has heard this term at some point or another, but it's, you know, our, our internal 24 hour or diurnal or rhythms, and is driven by this this internal clock, the circadian clock, which is basically our relationship to the sun or our solar day. And this is important. It helps us, quote, coordinate our biology and our behavior with our daily environment. So basically our day-night patterns. And this is a, what, what's titled entrainment, and it's just a synchronization to this particular rhythm, this, this solar rhythm. Um, there's all sorts of cues that reset these rhythms and, and can affect them. They're called zeitgebers. It's a German term if you want to look it up. Uh, I think it's time giver, something like that. Um, but it has effects. Uh, there's effects all over the place, metabolic effects, central nervous system effects, hormonal effects. Um, and then there's there's different markers for these rhythms. And, there, and there's a whole lot of them. I mean, there's there's fluctuations and changes over the course of the day in our heart rate, our blood pressure, immune and inflammatory responses, autophagy, which is basically how our cells clean themselves up. And all this happens on this whole diurnal schedule. And then the three classic markers for it are or changes in our core body temp minimum. So I think it's like lowest, uh, like an hour before waking, and then it's highest mid, I think mid to late afternoon, typically. And then cortisol levels, so we're super high in the morning, which is why m most uh, people advocate having a bit of food uh, in the system in the morning to, to kind of combat these high cortisol levels, these cat catabolic, uh, this catabolic hormone in particular. Um, and then cortisol uh, drops over the course of the day. But it is worth noting that cortisol is particularly high at the end of a high-intensity workout, hmm. which is why a lot of coaches advocate and a lot of people advocate um, some dose of uh, high glycemic or you know, simple carbohydrate after because car uh, uh, insulin, so the release of insulin that's stimulated by that, that ingestion of simple carbohydrate actually reduces those cortisol levels. Hmm. Smart. So, um, and then the one that's of key interest to us is melatonin secretion. And this, you know, this is a hormone that's secreted by the pineal gland that's basically responsible for sleep and wakefulness. And, and when we tie it back to the entrainment of these, these circadian rhythms, you know, we can, we can disrupt them. Um, and, and, and light is basically what governs this, our exposure to light. And it's different types of light that either, you know, tell us it's time to sleep or tell us it's time to wake up. Interesting. So I'm going to say that all back again. Sure. Your circadian rhythm tells you when to be sleepy and when to wake up, and you can do things to not be sleepy. Your circadian rhythm and how it affects melatonin secretion in well, particular uh, in this case. But yeah. The dumb way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to simplify things. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how you could mess it up, what not to do to so, mess it so up. So basically what inspired all this was the fact that we noticed that, you know, exposure to light, and it's a real hot topic, you know, when do you cut off exposure to light um, such that you don't disrupt your sleep and what type of light disrupts your sleep? And it turns out that, you know, light, light basically dictates this whole thing. So bright light in the morning tells you it's time to start the day and, and certain circadian related actions take place. And then when the sun goes down, ideally, that's when we try to avoid certain sources of light. 
and, and, and expose ourselves to um, whether we manufacture it or it's natural dim light because dim light there's actually a term it's dim light melatonin onset and we can disrupt that by exposure to in particular brighter lights but it's very specifically blue lights you know the light we get from these small screens and and it doesn't take much and daylight and, and we should say as well daylight of course but when the sun drops there is no more daylight we're basically yep. creating our own artificial daylight with these screens and with this exposure to to higher spectrum light and so, so what it comes down to is, uh, at this point, the intensity and the wavelength of the light. And yesterday, Nate reminded me of something that I hadn't considered or thought about since I think high school, but it's the Kelvin scale. So, so basically that, uh, color temperature scale where you measure the light in Kelvins and, and what we're looking for is low Kelvin light. So basically warm white light. That's the, that's the red, orange, yellow end of the spectrum. Two to three K. If you see like uh, light bulbs, for exactly. example, uh, like you can get fluorescence or anything else in like different temperatures, two to three K. And also our phones uh, now, at least I know on iOS, like, you know, you, uh -huh. you can swipe up and put it into night, night shift night mode. Shift, right. And that uh, aims to to change the color temperature of the light that's being emitted from the screen. For Android and the new version of Mac OS has this built in, but mm -hmm. there's uh, an app called Flux that you can use. Yeah, and I, takes I, away I like the blue that. Light. I use it and it works quite well. It's a little yeah. distracting when you try to wash something in the evening and it's, you know, washed of all its blue light. But yeah. at the same time, what's more important, seeing that that movie in full color or actually sleeping well. Yeah. Um. So so what's important here is that the light exposure can advance or delay your circadian rhythm. So if you think about your exposure to blue light before bed and you advance that that rhythm, it, it doesn't advance your rise time. So, so basically you're just cheating yourself out of sleep or it mm -hmm. does advance your rise time, but your alarm, however, says otherwise, time to get up. Whether you feel rested or not, whether you're in, in tandem with your circadian rhythm, doesn't really matter. So it, it, it's pretty important that we avoid this particular form of light close to bed. So basically when the sun goes down, that's when we should start to avoid these light sources if we want to optimize our sleep and we all understand how important sleep quality is. Yeah. And what's super interesting about this is that even the smallest of light emissions can can disturb that melatonin release and, and all sorts of uh, the opposite of what you want happens. Cortisol goes up, ghrelin goes up, insulin goes up. Leptin, you know, the, the hormone that tells you that you're, you're no longer hungry is suppressed. Um, it's basically everything that's undesirable when you're trying to tell your body it's time to sleep. Hmm. And a couple of studies, there's one from a university of Chicago where they flashed a beam of light on the back of the knee and, and that actually disrupted normal melatonin release. So something as subtle as that didn't have anything to do with the eyes. Um, on the other side of that one that did have to do with the eyes is that another study, I couldn't uh, figure out who this was. It was just referenced in something else, but they, they used two millisecond flashes of light. So we're talking 0 0.002 of a second. So it's imperceptible to the human eye. Um, two to three hours after this person had fallen asleep on their eyelids, actually penetrated the eyelid, something they confirmed with the EEG measurement, and it delayed normal melatonin rhythm. And they measured that through the saliva. So even something as subtle as that affected this melatonin release. That's crazy. You're going to make me a blue light now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it makes me think about all the different uh, lights that we might have, like, you know, in, in a room or anything right. else like that. You yeah, know? but it is, but it is you know, a reasonably easy fix. So we talked about the low Kelvin light sources where we try to shift toward the, the, the softer end of that light spectrum. Yeah, so one thing I think everyone could do tonight is check your bedroom, and if your light bulbs say 6,500K, mm -hmm. you should get different light bulbs. Or, or at least dim them. The bathroom, yeah, if you can dim them. Even, even those, that, like, just just light bulbs, get some really nice cheap. Yeah, mm -hmm. LED ones. And you're also, it's going to make your, your living cheap. space much more comfortable if mm -hmm. you have warm light. It's just, it's, it's just uh, much more, I mean, think about it, even when the sun sets, we get, you know, change in that temperature, it's much more inviting, more warm, mm -hmm. right? So that's, uh, it makes things more comfortable, but also it could make you faster. Yeah, and here at the office, the opposite is also true that early in the morning, you do want the bright, bright sunlight. Yeah. Yep. So when I go to work in the morning, I purposefully do not wear sunglasses because I want mm -hmm. that bright morning light to help with my circadian rhythm. Yep. Here in the office, we've installed these things called solar tubes, which are uh, these light catching devices on the top of our building. And then there's a, a reflective tube that comes down and then the light comes into the office. So it's it's kind of like a, a, a skylight on steroids. And what yeah. sort of light do they cast? I mean, are they more toward blue or oh, more toward white? complete daylight, yep. So it's, it's whatever very- Whatever the light is outside, it just brings it in. Yep. So we have Naturally. pure daylight in the yep. office. And it changes during the day, the exact Calvin. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's very much, if we turn on our light bulbs, which are more on the 2000 end, 
um, you can see those look yellow and then the solar tubes look blue. So we actually leave the lights mm. off and everyone just gets experiences, natural blue daylight. And I, um, read about this before and they're, they're very expensive to put in, but, uh, it's should help with productivity and happiness. And we were used to, this is a reaction because we used to be in a basement yeah. and that basement was, there's a little teeny window it's and we tinted it. reaction to being stuck in a hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I could even see in an office space, uh, we could go daylight everywhere. And I've thought about that, but it's so expensive to switch all light bulbs at once. Not yeah. popular with the owner's association either. Yeah. Well, no, that's different. The light bulbs are fine. Oh, the light bulbs. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a side thing. The the We're in a little association here, and they uh, I didn't get permission for my solar tubes, and they might want me to take them out. So if there's any lawyers that – because this is like a, I also don't have to have the power on. If there's any legal precedent, please email me, Nate, at trainerroad.com, <laughs> that I can tell them, but I'm pretty sure that I'm at their their mercy. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, so different things that, that we can do. We talked about the, the apps that you can use and then just trying to remove those those daylight light sources. And when you do need light, surround yourself with the, the warmer light. Blue sources. blocker glasses too. Kick yeah. those around. They're kind of a hassle, but especially those. if you wear prescription a eyewear. A few people here at the office I've noticed use them mm-hmm. uh, when they're when they're working. So I, I just went to my sleep doctor actually yesterday. And uh, we're, we are going to have him on the podcast. We're just waiting for my stuff to go through a little bit further. But he um, he recommends for me one milligram of melatonin an hour or two before bed. He says never do more than one milligram because it might um, – you get like a rebound effect where in the middle of the night you wake up for longer. And then if you are changing time zones, he says it's, it takes about – if you don't do anything special, it takes about one day. Every day you can adjust your clock by about one hour. Hmm. your circadian rhythm. So if you go to something like on the other side of the world where it's 12 hours off, it's going to be hard. But he says for the use of melatonin, still just one milligram, and bright light in the morning, which you can do through, uh, Chad and I have these portable lights, which I do use in the morning Mm -hmm. too, uh, that do do like a 10,000 lux light. And I use that when I travel. And then he says, first thing in the morning, go out, get a walk, get that light on you. And then at night, Try to re- so yeah. try to reset your rhythm. And he says with that, you can do about two hours. And he, uh, when, when we have it on, he can talk more about it because he's very smart. But he's he says this is what studies have shown. And I don't have the actual studies. It's secondhand me saying what he said, but I do trust him. I mean, he's a, yeah. he's a very well-respected doctor. Awesome. Yeah. With that, let's get into Thomas's question. He says, hi, Trainer Road. I'm Thomas from Belgium. Currently, we are experiencing a heat wave of roughly 35C or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That is warm for Belgium. Our weatherman warns us uh, about doing extensive or intensive efforts due to ozone, high ozone concentrations. Is this really bad for your performance? And does the same ozone warning apply for indoor training? Uh, so do we want to cover that part first, Chad, before we keep going? Or yeah. do you want to keep going? Yeah. So, so Thomas, um, everything I've read, it's basically the, the concern here is that, you know, you're working out, so you're breathing more frequently and more deeply and using more lung tissue. Um, chances are you're also breathing through your mouth, which a lot of the, the incoming air is going to bypass your nasal filtration system. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, uh, you're talking about not only pollution, but also pollution and high heat, and, and the high heat actually exacerbates the pollution. So sunny days um, or, you know, hot sunny days are far worse than, you know, maybe after a rainstorm or even windy days. And then ozone levels, you know, we don't even need to be so specific to ozone necessarily. We can just lump it in with pollution. It's harmful, plain and simple. And I know some people I've seen, it works for runners. I don't know that I've ever seen this with cyclists, but they wear breathing masks. And a lot of the times those really don't do anything. It all depends on the particulate size. And if those filters don't filter that out, you're breathing it in just as you would without the filter. We're not talking about the mask that you wear because you do CrossFit and you kind of look like Bane. <laughs> We're talking about the like an actual filtering yeah, mask. not inspiratory training. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what we're, you know, weighing here is the benefit of exercise or the brain health benefits of exercise versus, you know, the damage that, that pollution does. And, and, and basically they're mitigated and sometimes more, more than that. It doesn't just wash, it's actually harmful. And that's not even to mention what it does to your lungs and how it can intensify allergies or if you suffer from asthma. So basically it's just a question of paying attention, paying attention to the air quality forecast. And, and we have a website for the United States called airnow.gov covers like 400 us cities. And I would imagine there's something similar for you in Belgium. I mean, there has to be. Yeah, we get it uh, every summer right now. I think I can almost see it out of our window. We get forest fires. Ton of them. Oh yeah, yep. we're dealing with a big one right now. And in the morning, it's Brutal. usually pretty good. 
but in the afternoon, depending on the wind As where the it heat is, ramps up. it can get really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what we do at home is we uh, close all the windows, have the AC on, and actually change that filter because my daughter and I have bad allergies. And you're mm-hmm. supposed to change the filter usually like every three months. At least that's what mine says. Yeah. Who does that? Hardly I'm, anybody. We waited Which six filter? months. The oh. filter for your air intake for oh, like we your change it monthly. AC. Yeah. That's yeah. smart. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he talks about what we can do. I mean, I would advise to train inside. Well, exactly. I mean, that is (laughs) is the takeaway. I mean, if you want to do short intense or, you know, intense workouts, do it indoors. I mean, if you want to ride, if you absolutely have to ride outside, try to do it early in the day, try to keep the intensity low and therefore your breathing rate low. But, you know, ideally do it indoors and try to do it in a closed shop. I mean, you're not going to yeah. sit on the balcony and open the windows up and expect to get any any benefit from being indoors. I mean. In this respect of avoiding the pollution. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Just in general, there um, there's a lot of uh, studies that show correlation between living in a polluted area and having higher disease. Like uh, oh, yeah. Beijing, L.A. and then Salt Lake also- City. Is yeah. it Salt Lake City one of them? Oh, it's, yeah, like some of the worst pollution in the U.S., actually. But you can, uh, if you Google that, you'll see that there's a lot of people in these areas have higher risks or uh, rates right. of, of, of XYZ, sure. ABCD, EFG, everything. He says, maybe related to this, after workouts and hot weather, I always tend to get a headache. Drinking loads, eating carbs, and a bit of salt seems to help, but mostly I end up having trouble with this for a couple of hours. Uh, he then asks if this could be re- re- uh, related to that. I assume yeah. it could be related, but also... No, I, I dug into it a bit, and I didn't see anything that cited cool. headaches in particular being related to you know in, in, inhaling pollution of, of any sort, not uh, let alone ozone. Um, I, I just see this as tied to dehydration. I mean, it's one of the classic symptoms mm-hmm. of dehydration. Also, something else that I noticed with this, even though, like you mentioned, drinking loads, eating carbs, and a bit of salt seems to help, which yeah. would be addressing that dehydration. Yeah, but even, I mean, you talk about drinking loads, it's, it's, it's clearly not sufficient. So when you're out exercising in, you know, 35 degrees Celsius, 95 degrees, Fahrenheit, that's that's hot and your body's dumping sweat, dumping sodium. So mm. you're obviously not keeping up with that. You're, you're not matching it is what I'm guessing. Coming back to the house a bit dehydrated and therefore with a bit of a headache. Yeah. I've also noticed a lot of people get headaches when they ride. And even if it's not necessarily that they're, they're sweating like crazy and uh, a few people that I know, a lot of them carry a bunch of tension through and they may have a poor position and they end up putting their neck in the spot where it's really uncomfortable and they ride subconsciously, right? They, they don't even intentionally do it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that but can Thomas here is talking about specifically in hot weather. This seems to be the, yeah. the issue. So I'm but, guessing but it's, I guess that's my point. Don't, uh, and I'm not saying that this is your situation, Thomas, but a lot of the time we misassociate things yep. and perhaps it isn't even the hot weather. And perhaps you maybe notice it more in the hot weather because we're talking about dehydration, but mm. maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's could be too tight helmet thing. straps. I mean, right. Yeah, yep. Totally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or new, I've had that too, or even just like new sunglasses, they kind of like yeah, dig sure. into your head with your, the helmet sunglass maybe, combo. Maybe hurts. because it's hot, I wear a little uh, skull cap and sometimes mm-hmm. I don't adjust my helmet and I forget, mm-hmm. get a bit of a headache. Yeah. And some helmets are not shaped right for your head. I mean, you should never have a helmet that feels like it's pressing into a certain portion of your head. It should feel like it just fits over comfortably, you know. In general, to know if you're hydrated, so let's say you're doing a three hour ride. If two hours into it, you have to go to the bathroom and it's clear. You're probably hydrated, most likely. If right. you if you come home and you do three hours and you drink a ton of water, you still don't have to go to the bathroom and you get home and you still don't have to. And then later on, it comes out kind of dark yellow. You're probably dehydrated. Yeah. And um, on the, the the neck pain and head pain, I actually just switched on my new road bike from, I think it was at a 44 or 46 uh, with handlebars. Mm-hmm. And it went down to a 40, which bike shop guys were like, what are you doing? You're tall. You need a wide bar. It went down to 40s. Oh my gosh, they feel so much better. I have so much less pain in my upper back and neck. Yeah, it's probably a postural issue. Let you let go of something that was like yep. Yep. pulling you away from your spine, you know, protracting all those muscles. Mm-hmm. In any case, it wasn't a proper fit for and, your it, posture. Exactly. And I'm also, uh, I wear, so I wear a medium tall at 6'6". It's like my shirt size. Right. And I don't have wide shoulders. Right. And uh, I think people think that just because you're tall, you mm-hmm. need like this this mm-hmm. really wide bar. So... I just, uh, I, I don't think the forties, I would just amaze me. I was actually kind of scared after I got them. <laughs> I, I wanted them because I was going to be more arrow and better and like a crit, like in a pack, but 
unexpectedly, my, sweet. my neck and back feel, it's just, I could ride forever. And yeah. I've stood by that for quite some time that your bar width on mountain bikes or road bikes is much more relative to the width of where your arms are sitting right, at your shoulders, much more so than, than height or, or anything else like that. It really does. I think that there's more importance there because like you said, it allows like Chad, you have, you have pretty broad shoulders mm-hmm. and you know, if you're in when you're riding and if you have to, you know, tighten your arms right in, you have 38 millimeter or 38 centimeter wide bars. That's mm-hmm. going to be really uncomfortable. If you have super wide bars, you know, it's, it's just finding that sweet spot. Let's cut my mountain bike bars. How, how wide just are you? Them. So mine are, I think the, we never cut them down. So 870, I think is the, no, seven, no, no. you're probably oh. around 760, 760. Sorry. Maybe 780 actually. I think uh, it's seven. Yeah. 780. Maybe 780. So then the max, uh, yeah, and we I can cut them down. I'm sure Lee... I cut mine down to 720, and I've been pretty happy with that. I mean, I don't have a big basis for comparison either, though, yeah. so I'm not the best person I to hit, ask. I I'm, hit my my bars on trees, which is annoying. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's... And, and mountain bike bar width is one that's definitely a complicated one, but it can... And I know we're getting off, off on a tangent <laughs> here, but... Uh, mountain bike bar width is something that once again, it's not a one size fits all thing. I see a lot of bike reviews say road like, bars either. I mean, you just talked about how yeah. I have broad shoulders and I still run 40 bars, but I also let my elbows fall out. I keep my, my arms a bit or my shoulders a bit externally rotated. Either way, I found a posture and a bar width that relate relates well and it works for me. Jonathan, couldn't I like, uh, just push my grips in, move everything. So it was at that shorter length Could. that'd be sticking out. I know it would look weird, but I mean, that's such a better Just option. before than, you cut. Yeah, exactly. Do yeah. a couple rides and be like, hey, this does feel good. And it's like it's like dropping your spacers, right? You don't cut your, your yeah. uh, steer yeah. tube. Yeah, steer tube right away. You technically could. Um, I think that, you know, a great way for, and, and we're talking about cutting mountain bike bars, obviously. You aren't going to cut your drop bars and try to put them back together. Um, but when we're talking about cutting mountain bike bars, I've found that it really the best way to do it is to get down in a proper push-up position and figure out where you're at. And it aligns in almost every situation for people where they, they should be. So, um, we, you know, if you're in a powerful position because a mountain bike, we talk about, we'll talk more about this later, but that attack position, you want to be in a position of power and strength. And that really does, does help. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, technically you could, uh, like you said, the bars would be sticking out and you'd want to cut them eventually just cause you wouldn't sure. want to have excess, but yeah, you could. So the only problem with that is, I guess, lock-on grips that have an end on them. Obviously, you couldn't slide those in a little more. Yeah, I think I'd have to have a certain type of grip to do it. Yeah, and it would be, it's always tricky to put slip-on grips that, you know, as far. So Maybe I could just tape it with some uh, hockey tape or something. Yeah. Try that for good. just a ride or two. Although the grip diameter, man, we're getting into it, but the <laughs> diameter of the grips and, oh, yeah. and everything else will definitely change the sensation that you have in your ability to handle your bike. So you'd want to have the same grips. So this totally has to do with the, the heat in Belgium. Yeah, <laughs> sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, how cool. And Thomas ended off by inviting us to, if we ever end up in Belgium to join him for a ride. So we'll be there next Saturday and some <laughs> ale. Let's go. <laughs> Just On our a joke. Way. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to be there. Uh, Alex says, I have a question about heat stress and preparation for a hot 70.3. I was doing sauna sessions post-exercise and during one session, I started to get goosebumps. I decided that was a sign to end the sauna session. My race went really well. And I credit my success to two main factors. One trainer road. Nice. And two, my heat acclimation work. Uh, he says during the last two miles of the race, however, I got goosebumps again, having read, how bad do you want it? And per this podcast going or per this podcast going reviews, nothing was going to slow me down at that point. So I pushed through and finished the race. My question is, why did I get goosebumps on these occasions? And what does that mean? I do not feel like this can be a good sign. And perhaps I was overheating and playing with fire, so to speak. Uh, nice, nice dad joke there, by the way, Alex is good. Uh, he says not backing by not backing off during the race. Uh, so Alex, I struggled finding information on this, but I did find one thing that seemed pretty, pretty reliable, reputable. And it just talked about this being a discrepancy between your skin temperature and your core temperature. And, and, and those two things don't always align properly. And when your body tries to set them back into alignment, you get uh, little um, odd occurrences such as goosebumps, even though you're boiling hot. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily indicate that you were overheating as much as it could just be indicating, you know, a shift in temperature between the core, you know, temperature core temperature was lower than your skin temperature at the moment or uh, vice versa. Yeah. I've gotten it where like you pour the ice on you mm-hmm. and then the, the, uh, the, uh, evaporative cooling comes from the wind. Just like I just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then I like, Ooh, I get the chills. Yeah. So yeah. now your skin temp's cold yep. body, you know, core temperature is still elevated. Exactly. So I'm not really like, uh, 
I'm not really cold. Mm -hmm. It's just my skin is going, it's freaking out because of that. I remember seeing a guy actually at the Carson City off-road. He was at the aid station getting water poured on him. And he said, oh, I have goosebumps. That means I have heat exhaustion. And I was just like- Not necessarily. I was like, man, you're getting cold water poured on you. Uh, I'm sure that's probably why, you know, contributing to it. So I do know that people I've read- and once again, I don't know how credible this is, but I've read people associate goosebumps with some form of, you know, uh, extreme heat stress. Yeah, there are bigger and more obvious signs to look yes. for. I mean, if you start to get a little lethargic, you're not thinking as clearly, your skin's clammy and cool, you're, you've stopped sweating. I mean, these are issues that say, you know, you're, you're approaching uh, heat exhaustion yeah. or Headache. in the midst of it. Headache. Yeah. Confusion. Confusion, yeah. exactly. Sounds like every race I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Hot or not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so never fear, Alex on the goosebumps. Uh, Paul, he says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. It makes my day when I see a new one pop up in my feed. 10 stars for the amazing amount of quality information and entertainment. Uh, thanks, Paul. Glad to hear him. Thank you, Paul. He says, it's excellent to hear about normal people riding and training and your challenges and triumphs. It helps put a very realistic frame around my own riding. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm the only normal one here. <laughs> I was just about to say, Coach Chad isn't normal, as we covered earlier, right? Um, with that in mind, I'm curious what a day in the life of Nate, Chad, and Jonathan actually looks like. In episode 99, Nate talked about getting nine hours of sleep. Inquiring minds want to know, what do the other 15 hours of the day look like? How does family time and work fit into the daily routine? As a parent of two, Trainer Road has breathed new life into my riding. Thank you for such an amazing and uh, life-changing tool. Paul. Awesome. Uh, very cool stuff. Nice of him to say that. So, uh, who wants to go first? Uh, Without kids, we're not yeah, going let, to details. Let's not get very detailed on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, one quick thing on this. I think this is going to be good because I've talked to a lot of people that are like, oh, you work at a bike company. So that means you just like get to ride whenever you want and you yeah, ride, yeah. you know, and, and I don't know if that's how it goes in other bike companies, but that's certainly not how it goes here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's... Uh, the work side of things is absolutely, you know, paramount priority for all and of our us. Our days are still quite busy. We don't have a... Yeah. yeah. We have one person who I have asked to ride during work hours, and that is Brandon, our product manager. And he's supposed to be testing early uh, early alpha builds and what's called pull request builds on different platforms all the time and make sure that things are matching up to what we want to do. He's also a pro triathlete yeah and a heck of a road racer he's too. moving into cycling mm -hmm. uh you watch out it's he kinda, just won cascade yeah. cat three uh no the baker uh, city classic that's it okay yeah the baker city road race mm -hmm. and he's going to cascade and i'm sure he'll probably he's i think he's sitting somewhere around 5.2 watts per kilo yeah. he's we he's have a climb here this is off subject strong. but climb here uh mount rose which takes about an hour he is number two on the KOM. The only person that's beat him is Levi Leipheimer. Yeah. Just give you an idea of how so fast he is. What's his time, by the way? You know? I don't uh, even know. Brandon, I don't know, is. but it's fast. But Levi did it at the end of a big yeah, ride. Sub-hour up rows is fast. Yeah. 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 yeah very fast. So um, I guess I'll, I'll kick things off. Uh, so I, I usually get up. Uh, every day I get up at six o'clock and uh, unless uh, our little guy wakes us up earlier and I'm up at six o'clock and then I'm, I do eat breakfast usually before I go to work and I'm in the office at seven 30 and working. I squeeze in my workouts at lunch uh, usually. So, and then I just eat at my desk in most cases. And uh, that's basically, then my day goes until four 30 at the office. And then I take off and I rarely ride after work anymore. Uh, I used to before we had a kid and it was easy to go out for a trail ride or something like that. But now that we have kids, man, I, I or one kid, I can't imagine multiple, but I can't get out to go for evening rides very often at all. Uh, it's just too much stress on the family. So um, my evening time is set aside for family time. And that's what my typical Monday through Friday looks like. So pretty um, basic. A nice thing too. Is oh, and then I, I also go to bed. Sorry, I, I go to bed every night at ten o'clock. So we have a a bike and rollers in your office. So mm -hmm. everyone's got a lunchtime workout. A bike in their office that really helps to keep the time pre-work or lunchtime or even post-work if you want to stick around. But th yeah. there are are opportunities as long as they're you know pretty much off the clock. Something else with that too is if you do have the ability at the office to have a, a trainer there, like. Lunch rides, like on Wednesdays, we do a company lunch ride outside. Uh, so people bring their bikes and we ride outside, but I don't consider that training. I consider that a social ride and I'm very strict with that uh, for myself. 
it, it, when we, I look at my lunch hour, I, I get, you know, the rest of the week. I, I love the fact that it's on the trainer. So it's really structured. So if you are trying to fit in riding, that's like one thing that I find is an advantage for me is that my lunch rides aren't just, you know, pedaling around outside and, and going hard on a few climbs, but it's structured stuff. So that's me. Uh, go ahead, Chad. Chad. Uh, yeah. I, I don't practice a super high level of consistency with a lot of things these days. Um, the one, the things that are consistent are rise time. I'm pretty much up by 5am. I'm kind of an early riser. Um, I used to do workouts in the morning and they work quite well, but anymore, if I work out, <clears throat> if I ride the bike in the morning, it's just a simple, uh, hour or 30 minute recovery ride. And a lot of it's geared towards something else. So right now, if I do those, it's about aero adaptation, getting used to my, my newly revised aerodynamic position on the TT bike. Nice. Um, and then, you know, day progresses as, as it typically does. It's, it's, it's work centric. And then um, I typically work out anywhere from four to six in the evening, depending on the duration of the ride and what I'm trying to accomplish. If it's a high intensity ride, it, it's kind of heavy on my mind. So I try to bang that out early and then eat a, a, a sizable meal afterwards. Um, if it's a lower intensity ride, I might postpone it until more like uh, five or six so that I can do the low intensity work and then have a light dinner and not be tempted with uh, all the, you know, the other things that could pull me off my, my goals in terms of body composition. And then, uh, go to bed with a, a lightly filled stomach on the heels of what was a, a light workout. Hmm. And what time do you try to go to bed by? Yeah. And bedtime is seldom later than eight 30. So I rise early, but I also hit the sheets pretty early. And, and the idea being to get a solid eight, even nine hours of sleep, though, uh, the quality of my sleep is often hampered by a late night alcoholic beverage or two. <laughs> <laughs> two. <laughs> well, yeah. Drinks for you, babies for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I have some, uh, I just, did my CPAP report, which is the breathing device thing. And I think my median time in bed now is eight hours and 37 minutes. Wow. So that's, In bed, but sleep time. Well, you can estimate that it takes me 10 to 20 minutes to fall asleep. So probably I'm only getting about eight hours of sleep now. And I think I'm feeling actually good. Like this is this is an improvement. Does it right. note how many times you wake? I mean, or do uh, you note that? I don't get that report. I still have nighttime awakenings. Mm -hmm. I do get my... Um, AHI report, which is like how many events I get per hour. Mm -hmm. And I was up from, I forget what, I forget the yeah, exact, I was very high at certain points and I was kind of mild at, at certain points, but now I'm like less than one, which is, he says we- Less than one an hour. Yes. And he says they, they target less than five an hour for the therapy. So I'm, nice. I'm, I'm good. Cool. And I was, anyways. Um, and this is possibly being reflected in the quality of your performance too, right? I mean, your, mm -hmm. your FTP is coming up, body weight's nice and pretty regular. I mean, regulated, Jed. I should say. Get, yeah, but I mean, you're, you get even, your, even when you have your dietary modifications and mm -hmm. your carbohydrate content's gone way up, your body composition has stayed, it's actually improved. You're mm -hmm. getting beach abs. And the, the other thing, dude, my abs, have, they look the best right now than they've ever looked. <laughs> you guys want to see them? I, you go into our, to our, the company shower, the lighting in there is just the perfect. I want to like it's take a I, I almost want to attribute that to sleep quality and not much else. Well, the other thing, I, yeah, yeah. You're, no, you're absolutely yeah. right, is I'm changing multiple things at once. Uh -huh. So it's hard to attribute to one. It's tough, but man, I think you've changed a lot of these things in the past. The one thing you haven't been able to affect is the quality of your sleep. The other thing that I'm, well, my carbs, I'm like, it's like twice as much. But the other thing I'm doing that is, uh, that I do also feel better in, and again, it's just like, it's hard because I'm changing so many things, but I'm eating so many more vegetables than normal mm. and a lot more fruit than normal. I wasn't mm. doing either of those. And that I could also like, uh, in general, eating lots of vegetables is tied to uh, great health, right? So yeah, I had like bell peppers. Yeah, too and, many people argue that. Yeah, salads and stuff like that all the time. So when do you wake up? Uh, between five and six. And I adjust this based on what time I go to bed and what time uh, and how tired I am. So my wife, she's a crazy person, <laughs> and she goes to bed between 7.45 and like eight, like really early. Yeah. And sometimes if she backs it up to 8.15, I can kind of get in bed at 8.15. Cur yeah. Curious, how does she make that work in the summer when it's light till nine or 9.30? She has a sleep mask. Ah. And she's getting up sometimes at four in the morning to do a two hour ride. I, you know, if I can add to what, you know, my, my, my mm -hmm. contribution to this conversation, I do wear a sleep mask and I wear earplugs and the quality of my sleep changes quite a lot when I do both those things, even though it's, it's a weird way to sleep. In a good way, right? It is. It changes weird, in a good way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Positively. Yep. yep. That's what she does too, which yeah. helps. Um, but so if I can go to sleep with her, I usually then try to set my alarm for more like five. But if I don't go to sleep with her, I end up working on trainer road or answering emails and i set go to bed at 9 9 30 pretty much, i think my best time to go to bed is between 8 30 and 9 and then waking up between 5 30 and 6 and then i feel 
So you're still talking a solid eight, eight and a half hours. Yep. And that's when I feel good. Um, on the nights that I get like seven, cause my machine reports it, I feel horrible. If I get nine and a half, which sometimes I do, it's only after a real big, like uh, training day, or I get multiple days before where I don't sleep well. So it, it, it kind of adjusts, but my wake up time at latest is 6am. Hmm. And then I come to train a road and then depending on, uh, how busy my afternoon schedule is, I will sometimes do a ride early in the morning, but I prefer not to. Um, because it's just so hard, especially if it's an intense workout. I find it very hard to do a a ride early. The only way I've been able to do it is with a crowd of people while I lead a class and how they do it. I'm guessing they do. They rely on the same thing, that whole group environment. Chad, we, we could just get together. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if one other athlete that doesn't, I've tried that with Amaret in the base. (laughs) (laughs) Nate just wants to. Not sure if that's a selling point or not. It'll help me. Chad just wants to beat you on race day. That's all. So (laughs) if I do work out in the morning, I'll try to, and I know my schedule ahead of time, I'll try to have it be something like Baxter, an easier workout, right? And then it's, it's, it's much easier on my brain um, to do it. Then I work during the day and some days I don't sit down at my desk and all day long, cause I'm just going around doing stuff for trainer road. Um, at lunchtime, I usually just eat my lunch as fast as I can try to get like a 10 minute lunch in when they go back to work. And then around three 30, I try to, uh, do another ride. So that would be my intense ride. Mm-hmm. And that's a trainer road. And I use all of our betas and stuff. And then, um, and I usually get to work between six and seven. Sometimes I get to here at five 30. It all depends on my sleep and how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So in generally my best thing is if I can get a start riding by three 30, everything's good. And then I go home and eat, you know, play with my kids. And then once my wife goes to bed, I go and work more. Yeah. Then the weekend, life, same kind of thing. Life of the CEO right there. So it's fun. <clears throat> and there it is. Yep. Uh, David, he says, love the podcast and app. I've been using the app for about 15 weeks now using virtual power. My next move is to purchase a power meter to up my game even further. I'm a 38 year old cat four rider that races mostly time trials in New Jersey. However, coming up is a 110 kilometer road race that I plan to do. I never win, so That's not the goal. Sadly, rather the goal is to ride strong and at least finish with the main field. So my question is, there's a combined cat four, five field and a combined cat three, four field. Which do you recommend I register for? Both of the same course in the same distance. And I'd like to try the three, four field because I figure the riding will be safer and I may be able to go faster drafting in a field that, uh, of faster riders. However, I fear getting dropped in this field. I typically race open cat four, five fields and finish mid pack. The risk here is that the new riders race dangerously sometimes, and it won't give me the experience of racing with better cyclists. However, there is less of a chance of me getting dropped advice. Yeah. Uh, okay. Don't do the four or five. You've already, you've paid your time in and, uh, it's, I mean, it's not worth the crash and stuff. Even if you do get dropped, just try to hang in there. I recently did a, a ride with, uh, David Christensen, Dave Christensen, who's a international pro races internationally as a pro. He's our filmmaker here at yeah. trainer road too. Works here at trainer road. Um, and then two other guys, Aaron Rindy and Ben Reagans, who are both also great racers riding with them in a pace line. It was so smooth and safe. There were no herky jerkies going on. Everything just felt like a thousand times safer. Inspiring. You can relax and you can Mm -hmm. just focus on the work. It made me want to like, be like, Hey, I'm comfortable with road racing. I recently rode with some lower people. And, um, one of the people at the beginning, they did like, they were joking with somebody in a pace line and like swerved into them as a joke and like that's a bad joke just yeah and all these other people swerved and i was like my gosh and someone else like had their they were watching the tour or something but we're going pretty above 20 and they started eating so they put their hands off the handlebar and like were reaching the jersey pockets and swerving they were no they were doing it in a straight line but i was right behind this person i immediately got out of the pace line and just sat in the wind but these faster guys i've seen them do that and they pull off to the side. They're like, they don't want to, they don't want to put me in danger when they're doing that. Err on the side of safety. It's, it's not, you don't need to show off. Everyone knows you can probably ride your bike without your hands on the bars. It's, it's, it's impressive. Great. (laughs) My point is though, yeah, just, just be safe. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you guys think? I, I, 
I just see it as an opportunity to race with a slightly faster field. And, and because of that alone, I recommend going with the three, four race. Um, there is a good chance that, especially if you get off in a smaller group, that it's going to be a safer race, but I think one, it's one that's going to push you. So even if, you know, your performance isn't uh, right up there and you, and you don't finish in the front half of the field or you don't finish all that well, you will have raced with a faster group. And I think that experience is worth the, uh, the, that particular decision. If you get dropped, you're probably not the only one that gets dropped, right? So oh, you can yeah. still race oh, with yeah. some other guys. And you're never, stay. almost never alone. Yeah. A race where you get dropped is not a failed race. Um, in most cases, you know, uh, unless it's a situation where your lack of strategy ended up putting you there and you totally should be at the front of the race. A race where you get dropped just means that you're, you're racing with faster people and that's okay. Uh, you know, you don't have to win every race. I, I agree with everything you've said, but I was trying to think of devil's advocate positions on this. And, um, I can't think of any, any racing benefit coming out of the four or five, uh, situation that would somehow, you know, push you into that one. But points is a different thing. If you're already a cat four, that means that you need upgrade points. And in some cases, USAC sanctioned events will actually give you points based on the, all the people that you were with in that race, rather than just the people in your category. So if that's the situation, you might actually want to compete in the bigger field. If you know that you'll have an advantage in the four or five field, uh, and you can do so safely and you can avoid the craziness. Is the four or five win. field likely to be a bigger field though? You never know. Right. No, so that's what I'm, I'm saying. Yeah. If it is bigger than the, than the three, four, then maybe you have a chance to get more points. Uh, because it's strange. I really wish that they would just give you points based on the people you were racing with. Mm -hmm. And they do that in some cases, but not in every case. It's very strange. One so. of the, the race directors here who puts on our cross races, um, we have someone, Justin Thomas, who's a high level, uh, cross racer. Oh yeah. And they'll put on a one, two, three, four race. And he's always like, you got to race that race. Cause Justin's here. You're going to get more points. Even if you get dead last, you get more yep. points. than if you race the, uh, four five and a half. I haven't done the math, but I totally trust him. Yep. And, uh, it's like it's when just, Katarina shows up to do a cross race, all the, yeah. I mean, everybody benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think, true. I don't think it goes men to women, but I, no, 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 I'm thing. not talking about, I'm just talking about being the women's race. Oh yeah. yeah. The women's race. Totally. Right. Yeah. yeah. She's, and, and the top. so that's, I guess the only situation where I would see that, that applying, or if you are looking to race against specific people, whether that be just for, for camaraderie or whether that be because you really want to try to beat this person or you maybe dislike this person, really want to beat them. Who knows what it is that I could see that influencing your, your decision a bit there. And if but, you race that, that three, four race, you might get a glimpse into just better race strategy and just, you know, more competent, mm -hmm. confident riders. Yeah. And I think that that's the, and I think that you know, posing all of my, my, those other perspectives, I think that that is definitely the wiser choice is to ride with a three, four field. Uh, the only, the four five field, the way that I could see making it work is if you had teammates, let's say you had four guys and you know, you're all going to go off the front, be in a breakaway or not be in the group. Probably, right? probably have a better chance. Probably. Yeah. Of and course, every race is unique, but yeah. probably have a better chance of doing that in that field. Well, just for safety. Cause like, if you know those guys and you're right with them, you're like, okay, these, these three guys are good. Mm -hmm. You could go off the front, play with that. And then, you know, maybe get dropped and maybe make it, but yeah, yeah exactly. That's usually not the case. All right. Uh, well, that covers it for this week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, for joining us. You can submit your questions once again at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And we will talk to everyone next week. Happy training. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.